Hi, everyone. This is Josie Schaefer with on Academics of PA, and I am here with Professor Irene Rubin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to today, and then we will jump back and talk about the beginning of your career. You mean literally what I'm about today? I mean, yeah. literally today? Yeah, literally. Okay. <laughs> let's do. Let's start there. What are you doing right now? <laughs> All right, well, I, I do several things. Um, I read every day uh, from a, a news clipping service uh, stories that might have something to do with either budgeting or my topic of the day, which is um, trying to tentatively at any rate write a book to help people penetrate bullshit. I hope that doesn't need to be exercised. <laughs> that does not need to be edited. We will leave edited it out. just like that. <laughs> um and, you know, it does some, some, I'm looking for examples in the news of stories that people should say to themselves, is that true? And then think about what questions they need to ask themselves and how to go about finding out whether it is or is not true or is partly true. Okay, so interesting. So are you talking more about like actual bad numbers or sort of things, stupid Sometimes. things people do? For example, exaggerations of of expenditures, or uh, how expensive is the is is the pension? How much does the state of Illinois owe on its pensions? And you look at the article and you say, "No, wait a minute! They've just added in healthcare costs. Health insurance isn't part of the pensions. What are they doing? They're exaggerating the cost." Okay, and then somebody puts it over the total population. How much uh, would everybody owe in the state for the, to pay for the amount that's underfunded? Uh, and then you see, oh my gosh, they have reduced the number of people in the state, uh, taking out the poor people, so that it looks like more dollars per person owed. Okay, well, that's a distortion. It's intended to make the pensions look bad and encourage the politicians to cut the pensions. So it's a distortion. Where, do you, where and how do you see exaggerations, either up or down? What do they look like? So that's just one tiny little portion of what I'm doing, just to give you a clue. As yeah. To, as to what this looks like. And I pick these things up from the web, you know, uh, actual stories that are being put out by one, either the left or the right, uh, for an attempt to persuade, or advertisements that are being done for medicines or dietary supplements or, or you know, lotteries or whatever it is. How do you penetrate? How do you first, what makes you think about that this might not be true? And I have a whole chapter on little clues that will, that will tell you things. And then how do you look into it further? That's really interesting. And I am guessing that is a passion project, something that you've been wanting to do for a while, or is this kind of... Yes, it is definitely a passion, definitely a passion, something you can do when you're retired and you don't have to worry about publications because I don't have a publisher for it. I know there are other books out there that do somewhat similar things, more on the lines of rhetoric and analyzing rhetoric. But it seems to me so important. Every time I run into somebody who has simply accepted an argument that on its face of it seems to me so stupid. And these are not stupid people. What are you doing? Why, why do you let this go? Is it just because it supports what you believe in? Or is there some other reason that you just don't have the, the, the critical habit of thinking yeah. about this? So I'm, I'm afraid people will either reject everything and say, ah, it's all bullshit, or none of it is bullshit. And the position has to be somewhere in between. Well, so do you see students of public service as an audience for this, active practitioners? I hope uh, both. Maybe my, educators? My, I don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah my, my, my thought is that nobody likes to be deceived and that these are efforts at deceiving them. 
and therefore a lot of people should have a motivation to read more critically. They haven't been taught. They haven't been taught in college. They haven't been taught in high school. Something is missing from their education. And for for people who are motivated to not be deceived, to not be fooled, not to be taken as a fool, then I think this, this book should be helpful. Well, I am super gullible, so I'm going to be the first one to read it. <laughs> okay. <Let's>... <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I appreciate you helping me out. So let's go back to the beginning of your career and how you came to the Academy and maybe where you learned to be critical. Oh, <laughs> mm, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where, but my guess is that it was back in high school. Uh, I had a very, very fine public school system that I was attending. In fact, my parents moved to this town because it had a good public school system. And we were taught to analyze what we were reading, always, both in history class and in literature classes. And so I think I picked up the habit there. And it didn't go away. <laughs> I didn't have that much use for it in, in college because I was spending a lot of time memorizing these characters, uh, which is not something you can get analytical about. But of course, by the time I was in graduate school, those those talents, that instinct to analyze uh, became much more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I probably went to a poor public school, so that's that's where the problem came about. But so coming out of college, how how did you find public administration? And I think you made a stop somewhere before there. <laughs> well, um, I went to graduate school in, in East Asia. I started in high school studying Chinese. I went through, all through college studying Chinese and, and uh, Japanese and um, not Japanese, but Chinese and Oriental culture, shall we say, history and, and language and, and, uh, and the works. That was kind of my undergraduate orientation. And I went on for a master's degree in that. So it wasn't until I got into a PhD program that I had to kind of choose a discipline or a field. And I chose uh, sociology because it seemed to be a wonderful way of approaching a culture. Okay, it seemed like a transition. Uh-huh for me. And, and I was in organization theory in particular. And that's how I ended up kind of moving into uh, public administration. But there was a, a very marked transition period, even within graduate school. I was getting towards the end of my program, and I had a couple more hours that I needed to get in order to graduate. And so I took an independent study, and the independent study was occurring just at about the time when New York City was tottering at the edge of bankruptcy. And I found that was a very interesting topic, and I began to do my independent study on that. I was working with Terry Clark at the time. And so we were talking about fiscal problems of cities in that, in that uh, reading course. Uh, and we were looking at some data and so forth. And that kind of got me into uh, finance and budget and, and the issue of, of uh, decline or of loss, which is something that stayed with me, I think, for the whole rest of my career. <laughs> but uh, when I was done, I was, I was, when I was doing, choosing my dissertation topic, I was still interested in, in Asia. At that point, I was interested in Southeast Asia, and I was applying for funding. However, I was in the sociology department and not in a Southeast Asia studies program, and so I didn't have any priority for funding. I didn't get funded. And so at that yeah. point, I was, it was very personal to me to think, what is the role of losers in American society? How do we treat the people who don't win? We're so victory-oriented, so oriented toward number one. We didn't even think about number two, let alone situations which are wins and losses. Athletes who lose races or candidates who lose elections. What happens to them after that? How do they cope? How does society view them? And that became a a really drawing personal topic to me. 
so to turn that into a dissertation topic, I began to look at organizational losers. And that was really what my dissertation was about. I was looking at universities and how they managed fiscal stress. What was the source of it? How much was it? And what happened to it? And I looked at a range of universities with different uh, degrees of, of financing, different degrees of status and, and so forth, and tried to, to get, end up with some kind of a theoretical understanding of, of how they coped uh, in all these different circumstances. When I was done, however, well, before I was done, I tried to get access to both public and private universities, and the privates wouldn't talk to me. Publics were not particularly happy, but they were forced by law to be much more open about their books. So I ended up studying only public universities because that's where I got the access. When I went to apply for jobs as a sociologist and as an organization theorist, I was getting absolutely no place. I had taught myself budgeting, and so one very kind sociologist in a department that I had, I had applied for said, you're not really a sociologist, you're really a public administrator because all of your research is on public administration. Why don't you apply to those departments instead? I tried that, since it was the same, to me, it was the same content, it was just a different department. And all, it was like somebody had opened a door. I had like five interviews in a very short period of time. So that really made the distinction, and I never looked back. It was, it was a wonderful choice for me. He was right, that was where I belonged. But would you, would you say today that you approach public administration topics with that sociology lens? Have you lost, do you still use those theories that even that whole idea of winners and losers and how uh, people and how they're made, is that still an approach for you? And would you say that's core to the sociology part of you or no, you're now PA all the way? (laughs) Uh, I think you get layered in, in intellectual life. You never lose what you had before, but you add something else to it, or you point it in a slightly different direction. I still, I still think I approach the world with something of a conflict theory orientation. Uh, it's not that I see things as winners and losers so exclusively, because there's obviously a million positions in between. I'm much more likely to see things as a continuum than I am as a, uh, a polarized uh, opposition. But I do think that there, there is a certain amount of conflict in the world and that one needs to see it, and it is in budgeting as well. And that if you don't see the conflict in budgeting, you don't see budgeting. Right, right. And I, I think we think contemporary scholars today might think of you as really firmly in budgeting. And so it's really interesting to hear how you come to budgeting, right? So there's that focus on what's going on right at, at a certain point in time that made you interested in budgeting. And then Right, like they're very flat documents, but there's this great story about how they are made behind them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 I, your work does reflect that. We can see right in your work how things are made much more much more than what is that good final product. Uh, your history then is really interesting, right? You were able to take such a new take on budgeting because of, like you said, that layered background. Well, and then the other part of it is that my methodology has always been qualitative. <laughs> I've done some quantitative work. I, that, I have to re, refer, you know, refurbish that a little bit, refine that a little bit. I've done some quantitative work, but, but the basic methodology that I use in trust is qualitative, and I did learn that methodology in graduate school, and it's kept with me. I think that a lot of the important questions can only be answered by talking to people and finding out what they understand. 
as opposed to counting them. I don't right. think counting gets you terribly far. I know that's supposed to be the scientific method that you can count and measure everything. But sometimes all you need is bigger and smaller. All you need is relative. You don't need the numbers, and the numbers may be misplaced. It's a, a misplaced concreteness, like when you have too many decimal places. and <laughs> It's not real anymore. Uh, yeah. It couldn't possibly be real. You know, so that certainly that element of sociology has, has stuck with me. In fact, my husband and I wrote a book on qualitative methods, on qualitative interviewing. So that's, and I taught it for a while as well. So if you want to know what, how the sociology aspect of it has shaped my career, it certainly has in terms of a methodological approach. Sure. And have you ever received any pushback studying budgets from a qualitative approach? Has anybody ever struggled <laughs> with that? Uh, not really. Uh, not really. No, I, I've been criticized in a number of ways, but n not particularly because I use qualitative methodology. I just answer, I, I can approach different questions than the people who use the quantitative stuff do. And we really like to think of this podcast as having a broad audience in public administration and wanting to sort of celebrate interdisciplinary approaches, different methods approaches. And so I think you're really exciting in that way because you have brought that perspective and stayed consistent to that perspective over time. It sort of like still to, works. I'd like to think so, that in particular. Uh, it's, it's not that I, I think the qualitative methods have no role, uh, quantitative, I think they do have a role, but you need to match the problem with the, with the method. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes people learn, they invest a tremendous amount uh, of energy and time in learning how to do really fancy statistics, and then they can only do them on certain kinds of data, and they can only address certain kinds of problems. The methodology precedes the problem, and logically it should work the other way. The problem you're interested in should dictate what kind of methods you use. Right. We are with you. So let's talk about maybe like the middling of your career. You come out, you find public administration, you graduate. Where are you working? What are some of your early research topics? Uh, you mentioned your husband. How did that relationship inform your work? <laughs> That's too many questions. <laughs> Sorry. I do let that. Me, let me go back to some of the early teaching positions. I taught at two small uh, colleges while I was doing my dissertation or, or just shortly thereafter. One was a Protestant school and one was a Catholic school. Talk about broad uh, experiences. And uh, when I was at the, the second of those places, I, was, I had finished my dissertation and I was doing research in the city that I was located. And it was a city that was having some financial problems. Uh-huh, see? <laughs> and so I used all kinds of data, uh, arch archival data, interviews, anything I could get my hands on to do a case study of when and how the fiscal stress developed and how it was resolved. And so uh, it was taking advantage of the opportunity, but I had a beautiful case study right in front of me that I did, you know, in, over a period of time. Not just that I did it over a period of time, but the, the focus was over a period of time. And that notion that cases develop and that stories develop over time has been something that has also stayed with me. Uh, too often, I think we do cross-sectional work. Uh, we, we focus on the moment right in front of us without realizing that there was a, a cascade of events that have preceded it and a cascade of events that post-states it. And that you haven't got the whole story. You may not have anything of the story if you just focus on the present. So I think probably at that point, that became firm in my mind and has stayed with me. Another beautiful phrase, cascade of events. <laughs> I like it. It's the opposite of incrementalism. I spent a lot of my career trying to argue against incrementalism, which focuses only on 
small changes from one year to the next. Very right. simply, you, you get a completely different story if you look at those small changes as they increase over a period of time. So let's say you were talking to a student. We have lots of fiscal stress issues in our contemporary environment, things that are going on. How would you, what is the approach you would suggest to them to be able to study things over time as well as manage the stress of an academic position and the need to publish? Like, how do you help them to fight those incentives to really focus on these long-term bigger stories? Well, the easy answer to that is that you break up a bigger story into smaller pieces. You have to be able to put one foot in front of the other. And I've reviewed a lot of people's careers. I get them, you know, the, the tenure decisions and the promotion decisions and those packages that they refer to outside readers. I get a lot of those over time. And if there's one flaw that keeps reoccurring is that people chase after money or and, and they get a lot of pressure from the university to do so and chase after publications and they get a lot of pressure to do that. And they pick up problems that seem almost utterly disconnected from each other. So they can never go, they can never ask the next question. They can never go in deeper into any particular topic than that one study for which they have funding. It never adds up to anything. And therefore, they're never known for anything other than city management studies or, or urban studies or something or another. But a focus on which they are known to become experts and famous can't emerge from a bunch of random pieces of a broken mirror. I feel, I feel like you're telling me about my career. <laughs> I'll <laughs> leave it alone. Get a, good idea, get a good idea and hold on to it and work on pieces of it. Break off a chunk of it that you can do and publish and that is meaningful. And then the next chunk of the same problem or something that is revealed in the first study that now you know is important that you didn't know when you started. So you can put one foot in front of the other and get deeper into the subject matter and deeper than anybody else has gone. And so for you, uh, budgeting as a topic, but what have been those questions of recent that just keep you going to want to go deeper and want to keep finding out more? <laughs> well, uh, my interest in budgeting is really very broad, but it's, it's, it's budgeting. It's not finance. It's not uh, exclusively um, how the bond market responds to anything. That's not of my interest. My interest is more behavioral. It's more how do public officials deal with revenue problems? When they have to increase revenue, what do they do? Which things work, which, don't think, which things don't work, and why? I'm very continually interested in accountability processes. What are they? Why does some city or state or the national government switch from one to another? What's the time sequence? When they're reporting on budgeting, do they look at the shadow years? Do they look at the impact of today on tomorrow and on the next few years? Or is it just right now? What does balance mean? What does it mean to whom? And how does that definition change? How do definitions change? Who prompts the change in definitions? And what are the implications of that? So those are all issues that intrigue me. And it sounds like as you've pursued these, you've really developed ways and tools to do that and probably been a great mentor to lots of folks. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what is, what is a great mentor, who has been a great mentor to you, and then what have you been trying to provide as a mentor to other students? Wow. Well, I have an easy answer to the question of who mentored me. The answer to that was Charlie Levine, who was at the uh -huh. University of Maryland. I had been very busy putting out conference papers. He picked one of them up, and it was close enough to his area of interest that he invited me to come and work in his shop and that we would do some co-authoring together. And that's the way that worked. 
at one point, he had University Press had solicited a publication from him. He didn't have a, a book at that moment, but I had the one that I had done uh, back on that case study, uh, that long case study, and I offered it to University Press, and they took it. Okay, so at this point, he's both providing me with uh, publication opportunities and co-authorships so that I end up really increasing the amount of publication, all in the same area in which I had been working. So I got a chance to, as I would say, put one foot in front of the other to develop more and deeper uh, analyses. Uh, And he was just, he was very, very good to me, very helpful to me in a lot of ways, including writing, um, how to simplify my prose, what words was I using that that I didn't need, uh, clarity of writing and so forth, uh, accessibility of my writing. So I think he was very important in in that dimension. As well as introducing me, he knew everybody in the field. And so everybody that he knew, ultimately, uh, he shared his networks. He was a networker, and I learned a little bit about networking from him as well. So no question in my mind who my mentor was. And it was not anybody from my graduate school. One of the questions that you asked is, what difference did it make that you were a woman? One thing that it meant was that nobody in my graduate instructors really mentored me. They mentored the men. They found positions, jobs for the men. The idea was that women were going to go out and get pregnant and and not practice. So why why should you waste these precious opportunities to to locate somebody in a prestige university? So I never got that kind of support uh, from graduate school. But I did from Charlie and from his cohort of friends. And once I'd make my own network, of course, then things begin coming across the transom uh, on their own. Now, well, how, do you, how do you be a good mentor to somebody else? Uh, my thing is to let people run. I know that a lot of people will bring their students onto their own projects. I did that very, very little. I think maybe one, one co-authored piece with a number of students. Generally speaking, it's a matter of advising them. What are your interests? Here's how you do it. You fix your design. This isn't going to be feasible. That will be feasible. You know, what are the interest? What are the questions that you're really deeply interested in? And how do you make this into a dissertation? And then what do you do after that? What What should your career look like? You know? Right. Did you ever feel like it was a burden to be a great mentor? And I happen to know that you are a great mentor. I have heard that. <laughs> well, uh, you don't really have any much way of knowing that that I can think of. But yeah, it, I, it is, you know, it is I know of someone you mentored, uh, but so, <laughs> but like when you don't get that experience yourself, you may find it much more difficult or, well, you have already had a lot to overcome. Now you also have to do this. Or do you feel that mentoring came natural to you, especially students of public administration? I don't know. I think it's, it's an outgrowth of your personality. It's who you are. If you really like teaching then you're going to mentor people. That's <laughs> You can't take the teacher out of somebody when they're there. It's there. And it's there whether you're retired or you're working or anything else in any kind of a setting or situation. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher. There you have yeah. it. <laughs> did did you always you feel like you were a teacher? I think a lot of people say, I'm a researcher and I teach, or I'm a teacher and I do some research. Did you always feel like a teacher? No, I can't say that. I think I, think I kind of grew into that role in some ways. I always felt like a researcher, always from my master's degree on, because you had to do a, a master's paper that was based on original research. Uh, right. And so right from that point on, I considered myself a, a researcher. And I knew that I needed to be able to do this. That is who I am. I'm not, I'm not teaching formally anymore. I've been retired for a number of years, but I have to do the research. It's who I am. Yeah. And 
it didn't matter what, what position I was going to be in. I was going to have to do that. But while I was teaching, of course, you learn how to teach and you relate to the people that, you, <laughs> that you're teaching and you learn how to do that. So talking about research, you are the only female editor of Public Administration Review. <laughs> Can you talk about how you came into that position and then, yeah, why did you want to do it? And then what did you see and learn in that role? Again, three questions, and I don't know that I can answer all three at no. one time. You have to learn to unbundle I'll, your questions. Um, I will remind you. <laughs> what I tried to do, what I felt very strongly about, was that there's a, a too strong division between academics and practitioners. I have enormous respect for the practitioners. In fact, many of the ideas that I pick up and repeat are from the practitioners and then back, in many ways, to the practitioners. I'm just a translator. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It keeps you close to the problems that matter to practitioners. Okay, So you need that kind of ear. But academics often go off on their own because they have these tremendous pressures to be funded and to get their articles out and to, to use the most sophisticated methodology that they can. And when they do that, the methodology dictates the problems, not the problems dictating the methodology. I've said that before, but it was important to me uh, for PAR. That is to say, I needed to make sure that the research spoke to the practitioners. Now, oftentimes, that's a matter of style more than it is substance. Some people may pick problems that are utterly uninteresting to academics. That happens. But more, it was a matter of, of, of how you expressed yourself, of how you expressed the problem, who you thought you were writing to or for. Are you writing to your colleague who knows exactly your jargon and what your statistics mean? Or are you writing to the guy uh, who's in, sitting in the city manager's office down the street? What do you need? How do you need to talk to him about your findings or her about your findings? My orientation as an editor was to try very hard to solicit materials from the practitioners because they speak well to the practitioners. They don't often write. They're not comfortable writing for a journal. But that's one thing that you, that you try to do and bring on board. And then the other thing is to edit material and to insist that it be readable. Well, so several folks on the podcast have said that one of the critiques of the field is a lack of translational research, a lack of focus on how research informs practice. And so saying that this was important to you at PAR, what were some of those things you were really doing to make sure? So you said you were soliciting and really working with I mean, were you really working with folks to improve how they wrote or what they wrote about? What was that process with you as an editor pushing the field to do something that it doesn't always do? <laughs> well, I was really very much a hands-on editor in terms of style. Uh, I worked very hard at editing each piece, make sure that it was cogent, uh, that it didn't use excessive jargon, that the footnotes or the explanations of the methodology came at the end and could be omitted if somebody didn't want to pay attention to it. There were some stylistic issues that I really sat on for virtually every piece that we accepted. I had a copy editor work with me, uh, and she also made sure that everything was grammatically correct, the quotation marks were in the right places, and she did layout and graphics, um, which I have no ability to do, but I appreciate. And so I had made sure that those things were, were working. When you start out, you have a message to the to the audience, as it were, and I tried to bring in a little bit of humor, 
which I think communicates well in our field, and we have way too little of it. We take ourselves terribly seriously, almost as much as the accountants or the auditors do. We need a little bit more humor. So that was another thing that I was trying to to encourage, stimulate, uh, welcome. Those were some of the things that I did. Also, I set up a section of the journal. It was on, I won't say neglected materials, but government-produced reports, which I thought needed much more exposure. People needed to know that they were there and that we're speaking to their problems. So uh, I tried to get that. Uh, of course, that not, none of that gets institutionalized, but at least that was my focus uh, at the time. So these were all important issues to me, and that's part of why I wanted to be uh, an editor of PAR. Uh, on a very personal level, uh, it was just a little bit of, of fame that might outlast me. <laughs> uh, journal articles get buried, and people don't see them very often, or at all. Your readership, you don't know when you put out an article and it gets published, how many readers do you have? Five, ten, fifteen? You don't know. But when you're a journal editor, you know you've got an impact on the field, at least as long as you're doing it. It was it was stressful because I had to reject some manuscripts that I thought didn't speak to our audience, people who expected that whatever they did was going to get published, people whose names you would recognize if I gave them to you, and they were furious. Uh, that happened to me several times, and I don't like being the butt of somebody's fury. It's not comfortable. By the end of the period, shortly after I was done, uh, is when I had a heart attack. And I think it, probably the stress contributed to it. It wasn't just that. Of course, I had stress, other stresses uh, at, at work, uh, but that may have contributed to it as well. I worked very hard at what I was doing, and the, managing the personal relationships part of it was tough because I had a focus, and that meant I had to be at least a little bit, I won't say ruthless, but strong. Wow. And I'm not so... into conflict. I'm not personally into conflict. I'm very uncomfortable with face-to-face kind of conflict. Uh, I'm a woman in that in that dimension or in that way, maybe an old-fashioned woman in that way. And it was hard for me to play that role, but I felt it was necessary. So, one, you did, I think you answered all the questions. But So you had a vision, and you're saying to pursue that vision, you had to make tough choices and probably great people and great articles that just didn't fit with where you were going had to, you couldn't accept. And you know, like maybe there's a dimension of woman, but like that's an extremely like powerful thing to do and visionary and strategic. And <laughs> you you took it in a direction and like, yeah, I have to wonder, like, do, do men like conflict? I, I don't think they like it anymore. Uh, maybe they just don't talk about it, but you made the decisions you need to, you needed to make to take it where you wanted to take it. I think that's just very impressive if conflict bothered you or not. Now, if it resulted in a heart attack, (laughs) (laughs) you clearly felt it in a very real way. What were you doing at the same time as being the editor, first female editor of Public Administration Review that might have culminated in that kind of stress? Yikes. Well, I was in some kind of a conflict relationship with my chair, let's put it that way, over a period of time. Do you want to talk about it? Uh, I had some conflicts which were very emotional, which were, you might say, passionate. When we take on these roles, right, we're maybe taught to be good teachers, we're maybe taught to be good researchers, but honestly, we're told to like work really hard. And so the interpersonal aspects of it, which you've brought up a couple of times, right, the humor at par and this can be really difficult. And the connection you have to your students, as well as to your co-authors, your colleagues, 
the people you see a couple of times a year, but those are really important moments for you. The interpersonal is not taught, right? We either like have a great personality or <laughs> we, we don't <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> and yeah, but like we, you know, we still have to survive. And what is fairly political environments, right? Just being in the academy, working at a university. And so, yeah, I don't know that anybody really brings up these sort of like day to day. It's really hard to deal with decision making and deal with other people's choices that do affect you. And yeah, so I think that's really important. And to recognize what kind of stress these relationships can bring in a life. I mean, thank you for sharing. I don't know how else to say it. I, I, I don't think everybody necessarily has to do it. I think you could be much more distant than I was. I, I'm not very well masked. Uh, my emotions are right out there. <laughs> Wherever I am, I am what you see. And so it may be more difficult for me to manage these things than it would be for somebody who's a little bit more uh, distant or more more interior, perhaps. No, I mean, I, I'm with you. And I think too, right, when someone gets into public service, there's a good chance they're going to be passionate about this work. I mean, when I bet when you see people waste money, it drives you crazy. It drives <laughs> me crazy. And not that being in this field allows me to have an opinion about this, but I probably am quicker to develop opinions about these things. And so then you passionately share them. And then, yeah, you always feel really let Especially if you put your put some energy into it, then it's that much harder to find out it's that you weren't able to move the needle or change something as small as what goes on in the office, but to as big as like the larger questions we ask. It's it's hard not to move the needle. I agree with you, by the way, about the personal relationships that you develop at conferences. Uh, I think you do end up, you know, some people will will maintain their cohort from graduate school and see them, you know, once a year at these conferences. And other people make their own, you know, networks of, of related interests and so forth. But they do become kind of a supportive family. Well, so what happened after the heart attack? I'm now completely <laughs> engrossed. Well, that was a, that's another story. Um, I was stented. Uh, and after a while, I, I felt much better, much better than I had for years. And But something happened to the level of fire in my belly, as it were. All these years, I felt that I had had to be more productive than anybody else in my department because I was a woman. It wasn't that I felt I was a woman, I had to do this, but it was pretty obvious in terms of the reward system that I had to do twice as much, roughly, as anybody else in order to get to the same level of reward. So I worked really, really hard, really constant work of turning out all the time, besides the fact that I loved what I was doing, which made it more of a pleasure. But that drive to continue to put stuff out, to do the administrative work, to supervise the dissertations, to be the mentor, to do all of those things, the drive to do them all kind of evaporated. I had imagined myself teaching for many, many more years, but when it came to it, I couldn't wait to retire. Retiring meant that I could continue to do what I wanted to do at the pace that I wanted to do it. And so as soon as I was able to financially retire, I did so and continue to do my writing and, and my research. And I supervised the dissertations until those students got through, which was another three or four years. Um, so I, I handled my responsibilities, but I was no longer driven. Something else was more important, I realized. <laughs> and I changed my work-life balance, let me put it that way, rather dramatically. So let's talk about that some more. 
again, I think just to be really concrete for folks that are listening, how many hours a week were you working when you were the editor apart? Oh, probably about 60, I would say. That's a lot. I would guess from that you did not have a great work-life balance or <laughs> well, I the, tried to the life alert you to wasn't. the fact that I did not have, I don't have a work-life balance that I could possibly say to somebody else, do it the way I did it. I can't do that. My sense was that if I was going to have children, they were going to take a tremendous amount of time and I wasn't going to be able to do what I needed to do either personally in terms of research and working and having a career or even meeting the, the minimum standards, which I'd not have been comfortable with. I couldn't do it. Kids require more than that. And so, and I, I'm no superwoman. I can't do everything. I know people who have, and I admire them enormously, but that wasn't me. I was either going to do good at, at what I was doing, or I was going to do the other role. And I decided to do the career and the, and the research and the writing because I loved it. And I just couldn't see giving that up. I would always feel a sense of resentment, perhaps, that, that had been taken away from me, and that I was Johnny's mother or Jimmy's mother or Jody's mother or whatever, and that was it. I remember one professor in graduate school telling me, why is it that women always carry their briefcases with them? And what he meant was that a woman needed to have some kind of a prop to assure that she was not a housewife. A man didn't need that, but a woman needed a prop. And I thought that was very observant of him. It disturbed me, but I understood what he was saying. That was the world in which I grew up and, and yeah. was a professor I, in. I hope that's no longer the case. I think women have finally earned the right to be mediocre. <laughs> Gosh, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> that was well, not meant to do, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm grappling with, was it the times and the messages you were receiving? Or maybe it's okay for you to have that much drive and to have wanted to work this hard and for that to be a focus and so how much of it came from you versus how much of it came from society or is that just not it, that might not even be an important question it's a wonderful question but i can't answer it i have no idea they're both involved clearly and i don't know what the actual mix is i know that i had to do this that i i had to be using my my brain i had to be doing the analysis i had to be looking into questions i had to question everything I knew that I had to do that, no matter what was in my life. And I didn't think I could do that while I had kids. That the kids would require more than that, and if I didn't give it to them, that would be a problem. Yeah. And I would be criticized all over by society. I right. certainly ran into criticism, implicit criticism from my parents for the decision that I made. They would have much rather, much rather me having kids. It wasn't important to them. Why would it be important to them that I have an intellectual career? It wasn't. It wasn't part of their lives. It wasn't part of their vision. It wasn't what they wanted for themselves or for me. So I had to fight against that in terms of the social pressures. But you, you are who you are. I mean, you can't yeah. be somebody else. You yeah. can't just choose to be somebody else. Well, and it very much sounds like you made a very conscious decision to not have children, right? Some yes, people might just be putting it off or I just didn't think about it or it just didn't work out when I wanted it to. It does seem very clear that you made that decision. I did. And so, I mean, I think if anything, when you're like sort of sharing your lessons, and maybe it is to make a decision or maybe it is to keep your options open. But if you were going to tell someone to find work life balance sooner, right before the heart attack, what might you tell someone? <laughs> I think I would have gone a little bit easier. Uh, I think I would have done more travel. I found travel to be 
really wonderful broadening experience. All the things that they say about travel, uh, if you've got your eyes and ears open, it's absolutely a wonderful form of education. So I would have done more of that, and that would have given me a little bit more balance, I think. But for other people, I would say, you know, you can make the decision to have kids, probably not a whole slew of them, <laughs> and, and, and be willing to, you know, to have a babysitter or, or, or a nanny or somebody or another uh, to help and to make sure that you've got a spouse who is willing to help out. If you've got those things, you can manage it, I think, more now than you could when I was, when I was working. I, th- I think there's probably more understanding of that in the departments, but maybe not. I know when I was watching some of my colleagues in the political science department who had babies, the notion was a tremendous amount of resentment that she wanted to stop the clock, stop the tenure clock, to get more time before her tenure decision would come up because she had this major drain on her time for children. And that caused resentment among the men. So, you know, I don't know how that would, I don't know that that's changed. Maybe you know, you're younger than I. Oh, well, so I am younger, I assume. Uh, I have two children, five and three. I had them both as an assistant professor. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it was a choice I made. I stopped my clock with one of them. I think I suspected resentment because I do remember senior faculty when I was in my PhD program being like, not till you're an associate, young lady, you know, like that's not a choice for you right now. But I, I, I didn't feel it or actually see it. I think I had really supportive folks around me and actually another male assistant professor that had more children than me might be on the verge, verge of a slew who also wanted to stop his cock and who also wanted to take paternity leave and thought that that was where society was and the right thing to do. And so I'm really grateful for those folks. Another good friend definitely was the one that stayed home with their young young daughter uh, while the wife was working a lot more. And so, yeah, I think it has changed, but I think we still have it in our head that that might be true. And so I don't know like how many years we'll have to go by, right? This is that cascade of events before we're not even worried about it. Because I was definitely worried about it. I know with my son, I I didn't tell people (laughs) for real. Like I was obviously pregnant before I told people I was pregnant (laughs) because I didn't want people to judge me, but it was pretty obvious at some point. So yeah, the the (laughs) thought is there, but the experience is not. If you could do anything to change the field, to make it more accepting of women and women's leadership and are there things you think you could change about universities the academy to support women <laughs> uh well one thing is to is to make it possible to stop the tenure clock for new parents and you point out for both males and for females with the expectation that the male is also going to be spending a lot of sleepless nights with a baby up crying and colicky and so forth that his production is, productivity is going to be decreased at that time. And for that reason, I think that's helpful. I also think that there needs to be a little bit more tolerance of married couples uh, looking for jobs and effort to really place both couples when you're looking for one working. I mean, that was something that was sort of done occasionally, but with great resentment, the notion that somebody had been forced on a department by a superior, uh, by a dean or a, a provost or something. And that shouldn't be the case because oftentimes you're getting a bargain, you're getting two for one, or you're getting somebody with real talent that you wouldn't otherwise have gotten because they're a couple. The notion that somehow or another whoever is the the lagging as opposed to the leading uh, member of the couple is inferior, 
I think that that notion needs to be washed out in some way. I think that would be also extremely helpful. Those are two ideas anyway. The other is to get department heads to stop thinking that the only thing that women are interested in is shopping. So many times when you've described these people, I want to say, bite me? Is that an appropriate response? Who thinks we're just interested in shopping? <laughs> you don't want to know. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't. Please don't I'm not, I'm not relating anything that didn't actually happen. No, I, I know. I believe you. For you, it's and a I, history I lesson. I've met those folks, and I think a lot of respect that you retired at a point in time and said, this is where I want to focus and give. And I don't know that, I don't know that other people make those kind of clear and strong choices that you have. (laughs) One thing I would tell you is that a career is not what you think you're going to do. Hmm. It's not what you plan to do. It's what you end up having done. Then maybe the advice to all sorts of folks, but particularly young scholars is to sort of be open. Yes. Let the experience find you. That's it, to some extent. It's, it's called a random walk. When you take a walk and you go to the corner and you flip a coin, and the coin determines whether you're going to go to the left or the right, in your career, at every point, there's a choice. And you go to the left or the right, you can go straight ahead, and you need to think about, where, you don't think about where I'm going to end up, you think about the, the path along the way and what you see. We're coming towards the end, okay. uh, but you did mention that you have a spouse that you did write some books with. So can you yep. talk a little bit about that relationship? And maybe that says something about sort of the academic spouse uh, <laughs> thing you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, It was extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult, as you point out, to write with anyone else a long project. Uh, it doesn't always work. Uh, I've had some projects that we spent, uh, not my husband and I, but some other people, spent a lot of time working on, and it collapsed in the middle and couldn't go on. The, the, the differences between us in style and in content were so extreme that the project fell apart. What happens sometimes is that one or the other feels that their intellect should be the driving force and that the other one should solve whatever problems remain. And that means that the second person gets to deal with all of the impossible problems and when they can't be solved, there's a certain amount of stress or tension or anger and feelings of failure and all the rest that goes on. So it can be very difficult. On the other hand, it can be incredibly productive in terms of writing style. One catches the other one's weaknesses and ambiguities, and your focus is different so that you've got more than one voice in a, in a, in a study or in a, in a book, and that appeals to readers who have different sets of problems, different orientations, different personalities. My husband's interviewing style is very loose. He lets people talk. He doesn't feel like he needs to steer them, and he tries to make sense out of whatever it is that they say. My interviewing style is a little bit more focused. There are answers, there are questions I'm looking for the answers for, and so my style is a little bit more concrete. I don't necessarily let people wander around. It's not that I have the answers before I begin. It's still a a very open kind of interviewing, but it's not as loosey-goosey as my husband's. And the result is that when we wrote a book about interviewing, We included many more interviewing styles. We made it legitimate for people to pick a style of interviewing that fits their personality. If there was only one author, that whole issue would never have come up. So I think it can be very rich. It can be hard work. It can be emotional work. It can be difficult. 
But I think the product is definitely much better than either one of us would have done alone. Would you say that's true for many different coworkers and um, co-authors? I think it probably is, but it also depends on how the work is divided up. It's a lot less stressful if each one of them has a different section of the book or a different specialty. Uh, you do this chapter and I'll do the chapter on that. Then it doesn't really require the kind of intellectual synthesis or blending or merging that is really so painful when each one is both writing, when they're both writing the same chapters. So you can do it in a less stressful way. And I think many colleagues uh, who are not husband and wife can do it that way. Did you get in any large fights? Yes, of course. But we've been married for a very long time. So I have to say those fights have ultimately been resolved. And that's part of the strength of a marriage. You are clearly able to reflect on what both of you bring to it. And I, right, like that's what any good co-author would need to be able to do to, to make it through. Do you think it made your, your relationship stronger? <laughs> that's supposed to be an easy. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. Answers, I don't know. Okay. It, it certainly was an example of how to resolve uh, conflicts and how to defend yourself against an attack that's really not fair. Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much, Professor Rubin, for coming on and talking with us. We really appreciate the conversation. Well, it should be interesting. <laughs> I don't know what anybody will make of it, but you're welcome to it. <laughs>